Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Hey everyone, and thanks again for joining us today. But before we get started, let me just tell you a couple of quick things. So first, this is going to be, sadly, our last episode of the year. Um, I mentioned before that Jim is the senior pastor of a church called Mecklenburg Community Church, or MEC, um, that's in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I also happen to work at that church. And so, as you might imagine, Christmas tends to be an especially busy time of the year for those of us who work in ministry. So we're going to take the next two weeks off to to gear up and then, I guess, wind down from this really important celebration. But um, we'll be kicking off a new year of the podcast on January 5th, so we hope you'll be back with us then. Second, I wanted to give you a quick warning before we begin today's conversation. Um, Just in case you're in the habit of listening to us with your young kids around, you might want to pop on some headphones or save this episode for a time when you're not with them because today we're going to talk about S-A-N-T-A. Hopefully I didn't give it away. Um, In case you need just a few moments to pause this, make any adjustments, I'm going to take advantage of this time to mention one more thing. And that's that today's topic was from a recent submission made by a Church and Culture podcast listener on the new forum that we added to the Church and Culture website where you can recommend topics to hear Jim weigh in on. So thank you to that listener and thank you in advance for the rest of you who are hopefully going to help shape shape our future conversation conversations um, based on the topics and the issues that you're facing as you try to navigate faith and culture. Okay, hopefully that was enough time to make any adjustments you need to with your little ones. So we're going to go ahead and jump in. The crux of our listeners' question has to do with the varying opinions on as to whether or not Christian parents should, in a matter of speaking, do Santa with their kids. Now, Jim, you have written about this on the Church and Culture blog, and you've touched on it a few times, I think, from the stage at MEC. Um, but before you weigh in with your opinion on that question, why don't you start by giving us some background on Santa, or rather, St. Nick himself? Yeah, because you got to be careful, because if you just kind of do a Google search on the history of Santa Claus, you run across all kinds of things that uh, may or may not be true. For example, the supposed history of how the angel got on top of the Christmas tree. I don't know if you've heard about that. Mm -mm. Um, The story goes that it all started with Santa having a a really bad day. And he was getting ready for his annual Christmas Eve trip when four of his elves got sick. And then he found out that he didn't have enough toys. And then he went out and harnessed the reindeer, and he found that three of them were about to give birth, and two had jumped the fence. And so he was about five reindeer short on top of the four elves and not enough toys. And then when he tried to load his bag on the sleigh, the bag broke, and the toys went all over the place. And so that was too much. So to calm down, he went back inside to get some hot cider. And when he did, he accidentally dropped his glass. And then when he, that broke into a thousand little pieces all over the floor. And then right then the doorbell rang. And it was a little angel with a great big Christmas tree. And the angel said, Merry Christmas, Santa. Here's your tree. Where would you like me to stick it? The rest is history. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> so that's what you'll find online about Santa and tradition. So let's see if we can do a little better. Although that was funny and believable. 
St. Nicholas was a real historical figure who lived in Turkey and he died around the year 350. It was a very active leader in the early church and was part of the great council of Nicaea in 325, which was one of the most important Christian councils in all of history. Uh, Nicholas was known for um, holiness and for his passion for Christ. Uh, He was actually tortured and imprisoned for his faith under the emperor Diocletian, which is one of the worst Christian persecutions ever. And uh, he was, again, tortured and, and imprisoned for his faith. He gave almost all of his money away to the poor. And his love for children was incredibly real. Uh, one of the stories from his life that we know uh, involved three poverty-stricken young girls. In those days, the only way that girls could have a future with a husband is if they had a dowry. A dowry was money that a father would provide so that if somebody married his daughter, she would bring money to the marriage, and that's what made her marriageable. Um, a dowerless girl was very unlikely to ever marry and would often face the worst of situations because she had no other way to fend for herself. This particular father had no dowry, um, and he was getting ready to turn his his um, three girls over to prostitution. Nicholas found out about it. And he went one night and got three bags of gold and threw them down into the house through some type of chimney uh, or opening in the house. And he gave one bag of gold for each daughter to serve as a dowry for them so that all three could be married. It was because of this and many other acts of, of charity toward children that he actually became the patron saint of children. Over time, this led to the tradition of children being given presents in his name. The problem was that the children had trouble saying his name because St. Nicholas had so many syllables in it. And so it soon became sent, instead of St. Nicholas, it came St. Clis, St. Claus, and then later Santa Claus by the Dutch. Uh, Simply put, though, St. Nicholas was a, a wonderful Christian man, one of the true heroes of the faith. And all things Santa can and should be deeply spiritual in nature as a result. And so I'll go on record right off the bat and kind of setting a tone for my own thoughts. Santa isn't the problem. It's how I think we've stripped him of his story. We've stripped him of his sainthood and uh, what what drove his life. Hmm. Well, I I think that's a great point because if we're going to transition now into the objections to Santa, it really isn't any objections to the historical Saint Nick that you mentioned, but more of all of the extra things that have been added to this caricature. The most common objection that I've heard is that if we let our kids believe in Santa, when they later find out that at least the mythical version of him doesn't exist, then what if they have a crisis of faith regarding God? So basically the thought process is that your kid's going to turn to, their, to you and say, you lied to me about Santa, so you must be lying to me about God too. Maybe not quite as dramatic as that, but that's at least the gist. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, more than a few parents might wonder whether to pass on the Santa story and all of its accompanying traditions and, and fun and games, particularly those who worry that if they tell their kids about Santa and eventually have to let their kids in on the secret, that, as you mentioned, that will undermine their child's trust and other things that they've been told are true, like the existence of God. Alexis, in all my years of pastoring, mm-hmm. I've never had a single parent tell me this happened with them and their child. In all my years of living, I've never heard of this happening between a parent and a child. And I've talked with other pastors. I've never heard any pastor of any church ever say they had a parent come to them and said, because we 
did Santa, as you say, our child and told them the truth, our child had a crisis of faith. Now, that's obviously not a scientific survey, but my goodness, uh, it never once is that that thing that you hear bandied about. Not a single instance that I've ever heard of in my life. Uh, my wife and I told our kids about Santa and embraced the tradition fully in our home. But, and, and this is important, we made sure we told them, you know, why Santa did it. You know, we, 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 we gave them some, the background about how he loved Jesus and, 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 and this. And, and even though we did the full Santa thing, but on the front end, before the big reveal, we made it clear that Santa did everything he did out of love for Jesus, and he did it to honor his birthday. We never separated the two. Santa was totally motivated by Jesus, and was just he was just part of the birthday celebration. And at the end of the big reveal, at the time of that, we told them the secret in light of the fuller story of Santa and his love for Jesus, all rooted in history, all rooted in fact. There was no existential spiritual crisis. If anything, it resulted in, in deeper faith. They discovered there really was a Santa Claus who really did give gifts at Christmas, and that what parents did was in memory of Santa to keep his spirit and heart for Christ and for children alive. Well, another objection that I've heard, it doesn't have so much to do with the kids themselves as just the posture of the parents and telling about Santa Claus. And basically it's that, you know, someone might say, well, telling kids about like the caricature of Santa is lying. And the Bible says not to lie. The ramifications of this have to be, I mean, you got to, no Santa, no tooth fairy, no nothing. But I don't know. What do you think about that objection? Yeah. You know, we could get this into a whole parenting conversation and, and, and when we're getting legalistic about lying, quite frankly. Um, I'm not sure we're talking about lying, at least not in the, the deep sin of it and the nature of how it's portrayed as a sin, obviously, for us in Scripture. I mean, when you manipulate someone with some things that aren't absolutely true because you're gearing them up to go to a surprise party, um, was that a sin, the sin of lying? Or were you just setting them up for the celebration, setting them up for the surprise, setting them up for the fun and the joy of it? Um, I, I think with Santa, if anything, they find out that Santa is true and was a real person and that we as parents kept his love for Jesus and love for children alive. It's more of a game that they're let in on, a game that they learn about, a way of celebrating and putting fun into it that they learn about. And and again, I I, I mean, I don't want to chase too much of a rabbit here, but, you know, it if, if parents want to make that about that, <laughs> be consistent. Yeah. Be consistent. There are many things a parent says to a child in light of their level of maturity and what they're trying to convey to them that are very appropriate to adapt to them and maybe appropriate not to tell them the truth, actually, the full truth. Um, it, it, it's not so much that, you know, lying is that you're not giving, telling them everything. And and you may not be being entirely factual. I mean, a child is scared at night, for example, and the parent goes into their bedroom and comforts them by saying, nothing's going to happen to you, sweetheart. Mommy and daddy will always take care of you. You're safe. You're fine. Well, that's a lie. Because <laughs> you don't know. Yeah. You don't know. I mean, would it be better to say, honey, I know you're scared. And, you know, 
that's smart. You should be. Or a, a tornado really could hit our home. There could be a home fire. Uh, there could be a home invasion where people come in and tie mommy and daddy up. And, and, and you know, it's, it's awful what could happen. But we'll do our best to stay awake and try to stop it. Now, you go to sleep now. Uh, you know, yeah. I just don't think the game of Santa, and it is a game, with a spiritual lesson that is intended to enhance the celebration of the birth of Jesus would fall into um, the lie category that the Bible is talking about in terms of, of the, the evil of that and the, the purposeful deceit um, of that. Not when it's rooted in history and something parents continue on in his name and memory for the sake of the kids and for the sake of Jesus. Mm. Well, I'm definitely checking with you so far. I mean, I'm all for imaginative play in kids and really cultivating that, but you know, in my own experience with my kiddos, I wonder if I wonder if there might be a reason to pause and consider exactly how much of the modern Santa narrative that we embrace. Like how much of it is really necessary. Like, for example, you know, there's there's the idea that Santa or more recently his elf on the shelf is always watching to see if your kids are being naughty or nice. And I could be overreacting here, so show me some grace, but I do feel like that does elevate Santa the, to this kind of level of God in terms of this, you know, he has omniscience, he's able to be everywhere all, all time. And then you know, I worry about, is this kind of cultivating a works righteousness fear in my children? Christmas and, you know, is truly about a God of grace. And so to think that we're teaching our kids that, you know, they're being watched and that their gifts are going to be based on their deeds or, I, I don't know. Am I overthinking this? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, I mean, I mean, I hear you. I hear you. But I don't know of a single child uh, who had experiencing Santa a takeaway from an adult consideration of grace hmm. or equating God with Santa. They may have a warped theology of God that Santa like as they get older, but that's not Santa's fault. Particularly if the true story of Santa was told, if, the, if that really was the background and the context. Uh, rather than worry about existential theological crisis, think of the magic of it all and how important that is to a child. I, for example, I, I love the way Father Christmas is woven into C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and was a part of that whole uh, story. Or even the way uh, the, the magic of it was famously portrayed by, um, by Francis Church and when I say that name, people may not know who I'm talking about, but I think when I tell you the, the story, you will. In, it was back in, in 1897. Uh, there was a, a coroner's assistant on who lived in Manhattan. Uh, his name was Philip O'Hanlon. And he had an eight-year-old daughter named Virginia. And she asked whether Santa Claus existed. And he suggested that she write the newspaper, which was The Sun, the prominent New York City newspaper at the time, because they had a saying, if you see it in the sun, it's so. And so one of the paper's editors, a guy named Francis Church, replied to this little eight-year-old girl's letter in an editorial that he's just simply titled, Is There a Santa Claus? And, you know, more than a century later, it's still the most reprinted editorial in any newspaper in the English language. And uh, knowing we were going to talk about this, I brought I brought part of it because it's just so beautifully written. He says, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist. And you know that they abound and give to your life its highest beauty and joy. 
Alas, how dreary would the world be if there were no Santa Claus. It would be as dreary as if there were no Virginias. There would be no childlike faith then, no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. We should have no enjoyment except in sense and sight. The eternal light with which childhood fills the world would be extinguished. No Santa Claus? Thank God he lives and he lives forever. A thousand years from now, Virginia, may 10 times 10,000 years from now, he will continue to make glad the heart of childhood. Mm. I've always loved that. Yeah. we. I know you've mentioned that um, in a blog before, so I'll be sure to put that in the show notes in case anybody wants to read more of that. Um, well, I mean, we've been celebrating, kids have been celebrating Santa for a very long time. And I feel like this conversation about whether we should do Santa or not is more of a recent conversation, at least to the intensity that it's now being considered by Christian parents. What do you think is behind all of this? Like, why do you think Santa is all of a sudden on the chopping block? Well, I don't think he is for the majority, but I think you're right. I think there is there's there is something and and there's some crazy stuff going around. And and I don't I don't mind calling it crazy like that Santa is an anagram for the for Satan. Just change the letters around. And it's like, no, Santa stands for saint. <laughs> I mean, it's like you don't even know the history of this. Like it was like and literally what's going around is that Santa was invented to be an anagram for this and Satan and to take Jesus out when he was an actual Christian saint in history. And that's what Santa stood for. So anyway, I, I, I think Christian parents are desperate to get everything right. And they wonder about things like Santa Claus. They want to keep the story of, of Christmas centered around Jesus. But that's where, again, I'm glad we started with the real story. The story of St. Nicholas comes into play. It's as if Christians don't know who he was or what he did. And they wrongly lump him in with uh, all things secular and um, and as if he somehow is anti-Jesus and takes away from that. And I just, that's just simply not true. His story can add to Christmas and the celebration of the birth of the Christ child. Mm-hmm. Well, can you talk about that a little bit more? Because, I mean, based on what you just said, there is a way to keep Santa in Christmas with either alongside kind of the mythical version of him or, um, I don't know, kind of co- to complement each other. How how do you imagine that dynamic? Well, I went through that dynamic with four mm-hmm. kids and now 15 grandkids. So it's, it's not theory for me. Um, tell the story of Santa that is more closely tied with the real story. Even if you keep some of the fun and games and magic into it, you can still keep it rooted in why he does it. Uh, Make it clear that Santa and the birth of Jesus are tied together, that Santa does what he does because he loves Jesus. And one of the ways we did this was uh, by, by having things that linked Jesus and Santa in the minds of our kids. And one of the ways we did that, we had a, a large kneeling Santa figurine that was part of our home, uh, decor that we owned even before we had children. Uh, a kneeling Santa, if people haven't seen one, uh, is a figurine of Santa kneeling before in prayer the Christ child in the manger. Uh, it's it's very dear to us. Uh, when Susan and I were, were just dreaming about having children, when I was in graduate school, we saw this limited edition kneeling Santa ceramic in a store. And we ne- I had never seen that depiction before. I'd never seen that brought together like that, but it captured what we wanted Christmas to be like with our children in light of uh, upholding, you know, the Santa fun. We didn't have much money. 
but as soon as we saw it, we knew we wanted to have it for our family. Yet it was it was more than a hundred dollars, and for us back then, that might as well have been a thousand dollars. You know, mm-hmm. just it was just a lot of money. And so we asked the store manager if we could somehow put it on layaway, and uh, he was gracious. It took us six months. We made every little payment we could until it was ours. Many years later not to mention, as I said, four kids, 15 grandkids later, our kneeling Santa is still precious to us, a centerpiece in our home. Uh, you know, but that's not all. There's so many other ways to, to even the, the kid of, of, uh, of, you know, having all of this work for you. Um, for example, Santa is so tied with giving and getting. And so we wanted to keep the giving nature of Santa front and center, not just the getting of things from Santa. And we did this in a couple of ways. One of them helped us put what we give and get in its place. And the other one ensured that when it comes to what giving at Christmas is all about, we didn't lose sight of, of our giving to Jesus. Here's, here's the couple of things that we did, one, two of many. First, to put uh, what we get and give in its place, we decided that all of our presents together as a family, I'm not talking about what Santa brought on Christmas morning, but the gift exchange among us on Christmas Eve would be bought at the dollar store. And would never go beyond what you could get at the dollar store. Uh, that was now early on. That was a way of turning very young kids loose in a store where they could shop and get whatever they wanted, and it was fun. But it didn't take us very long to see that it could be a lot more than that and last longer than that little phase of life. That it isn't about you know um, getting; it's about giving. It's about remembering what a gift his life was and is, and how the only way to respond is with gratitude and generosity. So we give at Christmas. And to each other, but without letting it be driven by the things themselves. And it's one of our funnest traditions. For years and years and years, we did that. And then, uh, that's not all. We also made sure that our giving to each other was secondary to our giving to Jesus. And we did that by starting our gift giving with him. Uh, Above and beyond our regular level of giving, uh, we give a special above and beyond gift to Christ at Christmas. And we started doing that right from the very beginning. And the Bible is very specific about how you do that. He said that when we give to those in need, those who are poor, sick, hungry, thirsty, homeless, without proper clothing, those in spiritual need who have not heard about the message of Christ, those in relational need, the widow and the orphan. And when you when you give like that through the church of which you are a part, you're giving to him. And uh, you see this in the message of the sheep and the goats, where it said, well, when did we ever see you in need? And Jesus said, when you saw one of the least of these, you know, that was, and you did it, you did it for me. You did it to me, or you didn't do it to me. Um, and of course, as you know, here at, at Mac, we we have our annual giving to Christ at Christmas effort. And the idea is very simple. We give gifts in celebration and honor of the birthday of Jesus. So we should begin our gift giving with him. So every Christmas, we kind of, rally each other as a church and we encourage each other to give the most generous one-time gift we can above and beyond our normal giving as a direct gift to Christ himself at Christmas. And the money is then used specifically for things that reflect the heart and mission of Christ. Um, And that's always had three main components. I mean, the poor, those, uh, and then second, those in crisis or immediate need, specifically the widow and orphan, and then the church's mission to tell others about Jesus. Modeling that to our kids has done more to bring Christ into Christmas than almost, you know, anything else that we've done. And it it shapes a child. I remember reading of a family that made a similar commitment that like that 
to support several poor children in Haiti uh, above and beyond their commitment of well over 10% of their income to their local church. And it meant sacrifice and their children had to forego some of the things that their friends took for granted. They rode secondhand bicycles and sometimes uh, their Christmas presents weren't the latest and most expensive that were available. One Christmas, this man took his family to Haiti to see what their giving had done and, and to meet the five children that their sacrifice had cared for and provided for. Um, arriving late in the afternoon, they met the children standing in front of the school building, and they'd been standing there since early that morning waiting to see the Americans uh, who had loved them so much with their gifts. And as soon as their Jeep stopped, those five children raced to the Jeep. They began to embrace and cry and weep with all this joy and gratitude. And after a day like they had never had before, this American family got back into their Jeep, headed home. And on their way to Port-au-Prince, uh, the capital city of Haiti, the two American children sat in silence the whole way, didn't say anything. And the father finally asked them what was wrong. And they said, oh, nothing's wrong, the daughter said. She said, I was just thinking that there is nothing we could have done with our money over the last 10 years that would have made me happier than we mm -hmm. are right now. So. That's beautiful. Gosh. Well, as my last question, for families who do embrace the imaginative side of Santa, do you have any advice as to when or how to have the conversations with them as their kids get older about Santa in a way that doesn't promote any kind of distrust in God or faith in general? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it happens so naturally with children, that just as they age and as they grow. I mean, they're asking you. You don't have to sit down and tell them. But at the appropriate age, we, we, you know, when our children asked and they started asking us questions, we, we told them the truth. That's uh, we told them the fuller story of St. Nicholas and how we as parents kept it alive because of Santa's love for Jesus and his love for children. Ninety percent of the time, your child will be the one to ask you about it. Um, every now and then you have a child that if you don't tell them, they'll be 18 years old and looking for Santa. But <laughs> um my wife was that way. <laughs> they had to tell her because she just kept on. Um, but uh, but uh, your child will tend to ask you about it, either because some other child tells them that it's not true, which is always so annoying to parents, or because they just start to figure it all out, or they just stumble on a bunch of toys that were meant to be hid, and they, they, they start putting it together. But I got, I got to tell a funny story. I got to tell this on my, on my two sons. Um, we had bought them uh, a couple of Santa gifts and, and had hid them in a closet in our bedroom. And, uh, and we had done it a little kind of early for, for that. And we forgot about them. Um, but our boys around Christmas time sneaking around trying to find where the presents were. And then they found these two things that they had wanted so bad and had asked for months earlier and, you know, didn't say anything because they couldn't say anything that they'd been sneaking around. Well, Susan, I'd forgotten about them. Christmas Eve comes, so they don't get those presents. Christmas morning comes, those, they don't get those presents. And they couldn't say anything. <laughs> they were about to die. <laughs> like, like about two or three months later, we, we stumbled on those presents and we and and we gave them to them. They said, <laughs> we've been keeping this inside and always going back and checking. They knew where it was. So anyway, serving right. But, but when, when they ask, uh, you know, when your children ask, tell them, 
as they age and be truthful. That's the time you don't want to lie just to keep up the fun for yourself. Mm. No, no, no. When they ask, tell them. And, uh, and again, I found that this just isn't the big crisis that parents think it's going to be. The irony is that it wasn't for them. You know, it's funny when you talk to a parent, so was it a crisis for you? Well, no, it wasn't a big deal. And so, but so, but so for some reason, parents think that when they're the parent for their kid, they're going to screw them up for life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it probably, and, and, and here they are as Christians handling it 10 times better than probably their parents did. And, um, and in light of the faith that they're passing on to their kids. So I just don't, it's just not going to be the big deal that so many parents feel. Yeah. Uh, well, no better way to finish the year than talking about Santa. <laughs> this has been such a great year. Thank you, Jim, for all of the topics that you've tackled this year. And and really, thank you so much to all of our listeners. We have so many just faithful listeners who make this podcast just a regular part of their routine. And I hope I hope that's because this has served you. Um, thank you for all the times that you guys have shared this or um, the friends or family that you've clued into about the podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, this is a pleasure to do this, and we're so glad that it's serving you. And we're excited to do this for another year. So um, like I said, we're going to take the next two weeks off. Um, but hopefully you will join us back in the new year, um, and you can look forward to hearing from us again on January 5th. So until then, have a wonderful Christmas, and we'll see you in the new year. <laughs>